Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Has Russia's invasion of Ukraine united the West, or has it exposed divisions between countries like Germany and the UK? To discuss how the West has reacted to Putin's invasion, I'm joined by the editor of the online site The Article and former Telegraph journalist Daniel Johnson. Has Russia's invasion of Ukraine united the West? I think we all hoped it would initially, and there were signs that you know, Europeans, Americans, Brits, were, were trying to pull together. But as time has gone on, it's three months now, uh, we have started to see really important divisions opening up. Fortunately, not so bad that Putin's been able yet to exploit them. But I think they are nonetheless very serious and worth our discussing. Because when you read, for example, that um, the Italians are putting forward a new peace plan or that uh, Emmanuel Macron's been chatting to his friend Vladimir in, in, in the Kremlin again, you suddenly think, help, you know, what are they actually planning there? And why aren't we being involved in these negotiations? The truth is, of course, that the war is still being fought at a tremendous intensity, especially in the Donbass. And I think it's quite inappropriate that we should be negotiating while the Russians are still occupying huge tracts of Ukraine, uh, abducting hundreds of thousands of people, uh, killing and torturing and raping uh, many more thousands. I think it's too soon to be negotiating with Russia. So that whole line of discussion, which is very popular in places like Paris, Rome and Berlin, uh, seems to me to be uh, very premature. We have to help the Ukrainians to win the war. And then I think we can have meaningful negotiations with Moscow. But at the moment, how divided are we? Let's think. I mean, on the main questions of, of economic warfare, sanctions and so on, diplomacy uh, and above all the military side, uh, there are wide gaps between what I would call broadly the Anglosphere, the US, Britain, to a lesser extent Australia and Canada, together with the Central and East Europeans, and to some extent I think the Scandinavians, uh, we're all for a pretty tough line on this, uh, maximising the support that we can give to Ukraine, both military and economic. And in terms of diplomacy, we think the effort should be focused on uniting the West, preventing at least some of the damage that's being done by this war uh, to the rest of the world, to the, particularly to the poorest nations, which are desperate for food from Ukraine, and also strengthening NATO by enabling uh, Finland, Sweden, and possibly other countries uh, to join. So that seems to me to be the priority. But in Brussels and in the other major European capitals, they seem to have a very different view about what we should be focused on now. Uh, they don't seem to place much emphasis on the military support. In fact, they sometimes seem to be more worried about the idea of Ukraine actually winning than they are about Russia winning. Uh, in other words, what they want is, a, is an immediate ceasefire that would freeze the conflict, leaving Russia in control of large parts of Ukraine, 
We've seen this, of course, with previous wars that Putin has started, uh, frozen conflicts in the Caucasus, in Ukraine itself, and in Syria. And so I think that's a real risk. On, on, the, on the sanctions front, we've seen uh, an inability of Europe to really go beyond the initial uh, sanctions that uh, have been very effective, but go nowhere near far enough. So particularly on energy, uh, there's been uh, a lot of foot dragging. Eventually, they decided to stop importing Russian coal. Coal, for heaven's sake, is a, is a mineral that exists in abundance in, in Europe. We don't need Russian coal. Uh, the only real reason for, for, for importing it anyway was that it was cheap and that it enabled rather hypocritical, green-minded politicians to pretend that they were not digging up fossil fuels, you know, but it was fine for somebody else to do it. So we stopped importing coal, but oil is still coming in and they still haven't agreed an oil embargo. Then on gas, well, I mean, it's interesting that the Russians actually cut off gas supplies to several countries, particularly Poland. The Poles seem to have coped. So if they can cope, then why can't Germany and all the other EU nations that import huge amounts of Russian gas? The answer is they're not prepared to take the hit. You know, this might mean a percentage or point or two off their GDP. And it's a difficult time, as we all know, cost of living crisis, not just in Britain, but across the Western world. So politicians don't particularly fancy that. I mean, it's interesting that some of the countries that were keenest on the southern Europeans back in the, uh, you know, the last big, big economic crisis after 2008, they were very keen then on Greece and other countries uh, taking a big hit to their economies in the name of uh, fiscal probity and, and um, you know, tight money. Now, uh, they're not prepared to accept the same sort of sacrifices themselves. And so I think there is real hypocrisy in Western Europe. But interestingly, public opinion is not necessarily with the politicians. And we've seen in Germany in the last few weeks two big regional elections in Schleswig-Holstein and uh, North Rhine-Westphalia, where the ruling uh, dominant coalition party, the Social Democrats, which has been traditionally the most pro-Russian party, uh, have had a bloody nose. And Scholz, uh, Olaf Scholz, the, the chancellor, uh, has obviously been forced to have a bit of a rethink because if he's losing popularity, then I think uh, it's only a matter of time before the policy changes too. But meanwhile, his rival within the coalition, Annalena Baerbock, the, uh, the foreign minister, who's a Green, is taking a much more hawkish line with, with, with Moscow and much closer, I think, to the Anglosphere view. Uh, which is a very interesting dynamic. You know, you wouldn't in Britain expect Greens to be taking a, a tough, hawkish line on foreign policy. But Germany is different. You know, the Greens are a mature party there. They've been around for half a century. And interestingly, they, they seem to have been much wiser to particularly the human rights violations by, by Putin, uh, but also a kind of realpolitik which, which means that I think Boris Johnson can make common cause, Liz Truss as well, uh, with people like Baerbock. And, and her colleague Harbeck, uh, who's the uh, energy minister and deputy chancellor, he, he seems to be keener on weaning Germany off its dependence on Russian energy than, than the rest of the political establishment. So there's a very interesting debate going on in Germany and similar debates in Paris and Rome and other capitals. Essentially, what this all bubbles down to is whether we want Ukraine to win this war and what that means for the West. And exactly. It's not just about economics. If you look at what Henry Kissinger said today, he argued that the West shouldn't be hoping for Ukraine to absolutely defeat Russia, to humiliate Putin for two reasons. He says, first of all, it's strategically important that we have a strong Russia in order to create a balance of power in Europe that's been there for a long, long time. And secondly, so that we don't push Russia into a permanent alliance with China, which has been a, another aim of sort of Western leaders for a long time since the Cold War and throughout the Cold War. So do you think that there is actually a strategic argument, not just an economic one, that says Ukraine needs to concede 
land to Russia in order to save face for Putin and end this conflict, which is what Kissinger was arguing for? Well, I have great respect for Henry Kissinger. I've met him. I admire him. I've, I've read him over many years. And he's usually right. Uh, on this, I don't agree with him. I think Russia would be a much stronger country without Putin. I think the way to turn Russia into a strategic partner rather than an enemy is to hasten the demise of the Putin regime. I'm not talking about using force to achieve that, but I think nothing less than a humiliation is going to uh, force the Russian establishment, both military and civilian, to think again about the whole direction of Russian foreign policy for the last 20 years. I, I think that in terms of China, it's obvious that the Chinese are now tiptoeing away from their alliance with, with Putin. They've seen what's happened in Ukraine. They're not very impressed. And I think that whole gamble of Putin, which obviously depended on support from China, uh, just on the eve of the war, you may remember he traveled to China, you know, was pictured with Xi Jinping, uh, you know, this sort of iron friendship, uh, sort of latter-day axis, one might say. Well, now there is a deafening silence from Beijing. I don't think that the Chinese want to be allied with a loser. But it's true that Putin is running out of options. And he may try to revitalize that. But quite frankly, I don't think we should be in the business of saving face for him. I know that that is the view of Emmanuel Macron. He said so only a couple of weeks ago, uh, speaking to the European Parliament, uh, that Russia must not be humiliated. Well, it's only a humiliation for the evil men who ordered this horrible, horrible invasion. It's not a humiliation for the Russian people. There are many, many Russians who have left Russia even, you know, sacrificed everything in order to uh, not be tarred with that brush. So I, I'm on their side, you know. I think there are plenty of more rational people in Russia, even perhaps in the Russian hierarchy, to whom we could be talking. Um, at the moment, Putin seems absolutely determined to double down on uh, his policy. He, he has no choice. And his most likely successor, Nikolai Patrushev, the secretary of the uh, National Security Council in Russia, seems to be, if anything, even more anti-Western and hawkish and generally uh, hostile. So the immediate outlook is rather grim. Uh, if it's true, as I believe it is, that Putin is a very sick man and will at some point need to take time off, at the very least, for um, medical treatment, then the likelihood is that initially, at least, he will be replaced by Petrushev or other hardliners. Uh, so there won't, we can't expect any change in policy immediately. But in the longer term, if, as Sir Richard Dearlove, the former head of MI6, was arguing this week, Putin disappears into a sanatorium and never comes out or only comes out as an ex-leader of Russia. If that scenario happens, I don't think the regime is stable enough, strong enough, successful enough for Russian public opinion in the long run to support an unelected, faceless bureaucrat like Patrushev. Uh, so I think we will start to see open debate within the Russian elite and to a lesser extent among, among ordinary people. Uh, I think it's bubbling up already. We're seeing isolated protests from, you know, mothers and fathers and others of soldiers who've died. Uh, we're seeing arguments happening on Russian state TV that we haven't seen before. You may remember last week, the, their leading military expert uh, suddenly said, well, we are isolated. We are, the whole world's against us. This has to change. We have to do something about this. And by the way, the Ukrainians will soon have a million men in arms. You know, that's something we have to take very seriously. These people will fight to the death. They're not going to collapse. So people in Russia are beginning to, the penny is beginning to drop just what trouble they are in. Then I think we could see maybe not a coup, but, uh, but a shift at least within the Russian leadership. 
again, maybe not under Putin, but Putin will not be there forever. Now, you mentioned earlier realpolitik, and I think Henry Kissinger, who sort of the master of, of that doctrine, yes, he, is. Yes. Uh, he would probably argue, and I'm sure he would argue, that what you're saying is wishful thinking and that removing Putin or in the long term, Putin, a sort of Putin-esque government being removed from power by his own people or whatever is highly unlikely. And that Ukraine's natural state, this is what Kishinda said again, Ukraine's natural state is as a buffer state, not as a frontier of Europe. And it must accept that. What do you say to this argument that perhaps this is wishful thinking from you? And what happens in the situation or scenario in which you're wrong and Putin does stay in power, which I think personally is probably more likely? Okay. well, you're absolutely right. We always have to plan for the worst case scenario. Uh, let's suppose that Putin recovers, that he uh, he strengthens himself. He certainly is purging his enemies. He's uh, eliminating possible rivals. He sent Alexei Navalny, who's a very dangerous rival, to a penal colony. So, yes, he, he may stabilize the domestic situation and perhaps you know, find ways of maintaining his popularity and mobilizing Russian opinion. I mean, if We must always be very careful about comparisons with Hitler's Germany. But after the Battle of Stalingrad, Joseph Goebbels, the uh, Nazi propaganda minister, famously organized a huge rally uh, in the Sport Palace in Berlin where he called on, he whipped them up into a sort of frenzy, tens of thousands of people, and called on them, do you want total war? And they all yelled back that they did. You know, we want total war. And maybe Putin is capable of mobilizing that kind of fanaticism. So what do we do then? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is make good on our promises to Ukraine. Uh, The very least we can do for Ukraine is to give them our best weaponry, our best training and sufficient supplies so that they are not desperately running out with their backs against the wall. They are, after all, up against a superpower. Uh, in military terms at least. And uh, it is a David and Goliath kind of contest. I I don't dispute that. And there is no question of Ukraine encroaching on Russian territory. All they're asking is for the Russians to leave their territory. So I think that's the very first thing we should do. And we're not doing that, by the way, yet. I mean, even Britain and the US are not giving enough military support to sustain offensive operations by the Ukrainians. They've only been able to mount very, very limited counterattacks because what we're beginning to see, I think, from a sort of military history point of view is that uh, the initiative seems to have returned to the defense in this war. It's easier to defend than to attack. It is the attackers, the Russians, who've taken by far the heaviest casualties. So it's somewhat more like the First World War than the Second World War. You know, rather than this being a blitzkrieg, uh, it's turned into more of a kind of uh, war of attrition, you know, trench warfare, that kind of thing. So very difficult for the Ukrainians to recapture places like Kherson and Mariupol. But let's also remember that Zelensky is a democratic politician, unlike Putin. Uh, He does depend on public opinion and support and There's no question about it that 44 million Ukrainians are determined to regain their sovereignty and they expect their leaders, especially Zelensky, to deliver that. So exactly as in the Second World War, if Winston Churchill had been minded, which of course he wasn't, uh, to make some kind of concession to the Nazis, such as, oh, well, you know, perhaps you wouldn't mind if we just let you have... Cornwall and Kent say, do you think the British public would have warned that? Of course not, not for a second. Uh, In fact, when Churchill made his great speeches, you know, during the Battle of Britain, he even hinted at the possibility that we might be occupied by the Germans, in which case we would carry on the war from the other side of the Atlantic. You know, his proposal was that under another prime minister, because he was determined to die uh, in the defence of London, but, uh, but under some other leader, you know, the, the war would be carried on. And I think that's exactly the mentality in Kiev now. So I think we need to honour that. I think we need to tighten the grip on Russia through sanctions. 
And there is much more that can be done on that. Uh, I don't think the full force of sanctions has been felt yet, but it will be over the next few months. Uh, I think it's it's almost inevitable that Russia will suffer hyperinflation. There will be major shortages. They will go back to the, the worst days of the 1990s, the post-Soviet period when uh, living standards fell rather dramatically. And I think once that happens, let's stand back and see. But I, I, I think that will change the calculus. But in order to get from where we are now to that point, we do need to maintain the unity of the West. And that brings us back to your original question. You know, how do we do that? How do we persuade our European allies that they need to do far more than they're doing right now? Well, first, let's talk about Germany. Now, this is a country that you've spent a lot of time in, even reporting about for the Daily Telegraph. Absolutely. A, a long time, or relatively, yes. I'm not going to say a long time ago. Uh, well, it, some was, time it ago. was. It was over 30 <laughs> years ago. I, I, I reported on the fall of the Berlin Wall. For, and for the this Telegraph. is an interesting question about the fall of the Berlin Wall, because uh, famously, Margaret Thatcher, she didn't want Germany to be reunited, to be unified. Because she argued, and, you know, Thatcher was a bit of a sort of, uh, she wasn't too friendly to the Germans generally. However, she did have an argument about this, and this was that Germany would become the dominant power in Europe without taking any of the responsibility that comes with that. Do you think that we've seen that now in response to this crisis in Ukraine and leading up to it, obviously, Angela Merkel and her government sort of being quite close with Putin in some ways, obviously. So do you think that it was a mistake you know, in hindsight, for Germany to, to, to be uh, reunited? Okay, well, I think there are several distinctions that need to be made here. Uh, uh, you're absolutely right that, that Margaret Thatcher uh, was deeply concerned about German unification. Um, this went back to her childhood when her family looked after a Jewish refugee from Austria uh, in the 30s. And I can remember having that discussion with her in the aftermath of the, uh, after the event, as it were, she was very emphatic about it. But, but, if you were there on that night of the 9th of November, it was perfectly clear that nothing could stop this. This was the tide of history. This was a nation which had been artificially divided in the most horrible way for 40 years, coming together. And no statesman, however great, and Margaret Thatcher was a very great stateswoman, uh, can stand in the way of that kind of tide. Helmut Kohl, then the German Chancellor, a great Chancellor, uh, far greater than Angela Merkel or Schroeder or Scholz, the last three German Chancellors, uh, I would say that the earlier German Chancellors, Adenauer, Brandt, Schmidt and Kohl, were, were all much greater leaders. And, uh, and they all understood the danger of, of Germany being too powerful in Europe, and they were determined not to let that happen. So Kohl brilliantly outmaneuvered Gorbachev and the Russians to uh, enable unification to, to go ahead smoothly, uh, and without Germany detaching itself from NATO and becoming this sort of free-floating, rather dangerous neutral state in the middle of Europe, which was, I think, a major worry for people like Mrs. Thatcher. So, in fact, Germany, Germany didn't become that sort of danger. What it did, however, do was to abandon the Cold War mentality, which made it realise that it had made a terrible mistake under the Nazis, all kinds of mistakes, of course, but in particular a strategic mistake by becoming an enemy of the West. And, and you know, under, I mean, I, I still remember how Helmut Kohl his favourite music was the American Air Force big band, you know. I mean, he was of that generation for whom the Americans were the liberators and saviours of Germany from the Russians. Uh, liberators from the Nazis and saviours from the Russians. And I think that generation of Germans understood that very, very well. Uh, I think since then, we've had a rather different generation who didn't have that experience and who've allowed Germany, as you rightly say, to become much too close to Russia, and they have, as it were, dismantled their defences to a really dangerous extent. I mean, back in the 80s, I visited the Bundeswehr, the German army, uh, spent several days with them. It was then a very fine army, very well trained, very well equipped. That army no longer exists. This was one of the first revelations at the beginning of this 
war in Ukraine was when the head of the German army admitted, he said, we have been stripped bare. He said, we have nothing. It wasn't quite true. They do have enough tanks and guns uh, to, to help the Ukrainians. But it is true that uh, it, is, it has ceased to be an important military power. And Scholz, the best thing Scholz has done was to announce that he was going to spend 100 billion euros rearming Germany. Good for him. It's nothing like enough, though. And, and, and that doesn't get him off the hook because that's a long-term project. The short term, which is vital, is helping Ukraine. And that is what they're not yet doing. They've been, you know, arguing and, and obfuscating in, in ways that I think are almost, al almost corrupt, actually. I mean, you know, what, what has emerged in the last three months is the depth to which some German officials and politicians were prepared to collaborate with Putin and his, his minions in very murky and obscure ways, which, which have meant that, um, for example, the building of the Nord Stream pipeline, you know, this was got through against all kinds of opposition, all kinds of advice from America and Britain and others. And uh, it should never have happened. And it was only done by subterfuge. And it took Schultz a very long time before he was even prepared to say to Putin, OK, if you in attack Ukraine, you can forget about Nord Stream. If he'd said that much earlier, or better still, cancel the project anyway, I think Putin might have got that message. But that's, of course, speculation. That's, that's history now. But I think we have to see that Germany had become, over those 30 years or so, so, so deeply entwined with the Russians, particularly on energy, of course, but also other forms of trade, you know, cars and high-tech goods, all kinds of manufacturers, I mean, for, for most of that period, Germany was Russia's biggest trading partner. And so the vested interests were enormous. And in particular, the Social Democrat Party, which wasn't in office for some of this time, but, but was the junior partner of Angela Merkel for a lot of her time, seems to have interpreted the policy of Ostpolitik, which was initiated back in the 60s and 70s by Willy Brandt. That was designed to... Um, it's a form of détente to overcome the division of Germany by finding, you know, areas where cooperation with the Eastern Bloc was possible. That was relatively innocuous. You know, that did not get in the way of wider Western interests. But what Ostpolitik has become now uh, has unfortunately become, I think, disastrous for Western interests and has given the green light to Putin in Ukraine. To be fair to the Germans, there was much argument throughout the early noughties and even into the sort of late mid-90s that it was time for us to accept Russia into the community of Western nations and we should uh, have this sort of more conciliatory approach to them so that they don't end up in the situation that we have today in which they are basically an enemy and an opponent. And a whole series of mistakes was, was made, obviously, on both the Russian side and on in the West side in terms of our sort of dealings with Russia. Many people argue that in the 90s we really betrayed them by, by, by sort of raping their economy through unfettered capitalism and allowing for these great oligarchies to, to, to form and things like that. Anyway, but there's, there's, so what I'm trying to say is there are some debates as to whether, you know, this wasn't always such a clear-cut moral issue because Putin uh, wasn't always there and there was always this argument, the same with China, that we shouldn't isolate them in this, in this way because we should be trying to, to, to keep them sort of relatively allied and close to us. There's another, and you can re respond to that point, but I want to make one other argument as well that, to, to respond to. In Britain, there many people uh, have sort of had this glazed opinion of Germany over the last few years, I'd say particularly from the sort of left, from the kind of centre-left, as this uh, bastion of, uh, you know, this sort of heaven within Europe, this great country that we should copy, this efficient peoples who, whose politicians are incorruptible and are sort of, you know, the, the, the perfect example of how a, a social democratic state should be run. Do you think that this... Uh, this image has finally sort of been broken in Britain? Ah, well, two slightly separate questions. I'll deal very briefly with the Russian point. Look, Russia is a great country, no question about it, a great history, great culture, great people. Uh, but it has always suffered from disastrous leadership. It has never had a democratic government. You could argue that Yeltsin briefly in the early 90s 
it was it's a kind of quasi yeah. <laughs> a, a quasi democracy. But um, no, the, the, the corruption uh, of the oligarchs and everything that's flowed from that, that is not the fault of the West. Uh, I, I mean, certainly Westerners um, made money in Russia, but I think, I think you mustn't buy into the Putin propaganda that there was some sort of conspiracy or, you know, that we raped the West, uh, uh, Russia. Far from it. What Russia needed was investment from the West, and it did eventually get that, but without the democratic and human rights progress that should have been the quid pro quo. And uh, unfortunately, we're, we're still living with the consequence of that. Um, you know, Russia is a dictatorship which has exploited capitalism and used the proceeds for military might. But coming back to Germany, um, again, Germany is a great country and it's a country that I know very well, that I've spent most of my life writing about and which I love deeply. And I'm very proud of the modest role that I played in 1989, helping to bring down the Berlin Wall. But um, I don't think Germany was ever paradise. And I never agreed with my former Telegraph colleague, John Kampfner, that uh, he wrote a book a couple of years ago called um, Why the Germans Do It Better. Yes, the Germans do some things better. Of course they do. They make very good motor cars, for example. But that doesn't mean that it's a better country or a better political system or uh, that Germans are somehow better people. Of course not. And actually, very few Germans would say that. I think Britain and Germany are actually extremely comparable, very, very similar countries in many, many ways, and ought to be very, very good friends. Uh, and for a lot of history, we have been. But I think what has been exposed, particularly in the last few years, and, and particularly in the last few Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Months is the imperfections of the German system, which are many, and uh, I can't even begin to do justice to this. But one point I would like to make is that we've seen an unholy alliance of business. German business operates in a pretty ruthless corporatist way, keeping out rivals, dominating other countries. You know, we've seen this happen in, in a number of cases. And German business uh, did not want to give up its interests in Russia. And that was allied with German intellectuals. And this is an area on which I perhaps have a little more expertise. I mean, I've written about this actually in, in the latest issue of uh, a magazine called The Critic. We've seen, for example, the open letter signed by many of the leading German intellectuals uh, in the feminist magazine, Emma. And the people behind this, what they want is basically for Ukraine to submit to the wiser, more sophisticated German uh, view of the world. I mean, for example, the famous philosopher Jürgen Habermas, who's uh, actually not one of the signatures of that, but wrote his own article in another paper, argues that whereas Ukraine is still in a rather primitive nation-building, heroic age, 
Germany is in a post-heroic age. You know, Germany has overcome all these ideas about nationalism and so on. And the poor old Ukrainians are sort of trying to catch up. And the problem, he see, as he sees it, is that a lot of German intellectuals have been rather impressed by the heroism of the, of the Ukrainians. And he thinks this is very foolish and they should stop trying to pressurize Chancellor Scholz into taking a tougher line and instead persuade the Ukrainians that they've got to accept a compromise, you know, a ceasefire, giving the Russians at least face-saving concessions. And what, what this implies is, is the idea that Ukrainians are not real agents. You know, they're not really in control of their own destiny. They're not really equal as a nation to a great historic nation like Germany. You know, they, they should accept that, you know, it's their destiny to be a buffer state. I'm sorry, but on that, I, I'm afraid I think Kissinger is, is sounding a bit more like the German intellectual that he once was. <laughs> he was, after all, born in Germany. Um, and, you know, who wants to be a buffer state? I mean, what a nightmare. You know, imagine if Britain were a buffer state. We wouldn't put up with that for a minute. We didn't even like being a sort of offshore island of the European Union, or at least a lot of us didn't. No, we wanted our independence and our sovereignty. And, and Ukraine is a much newer state, of course, and this is why a lot of people, not just in Germany, but in other European countries, don't take Ukraine seriously. I mean, at the um, commemorations of the end of the Second World War earlier this month, the Ukrainians were not allowed, people were not allowed to fly Ukrainian flags, which, of course, thousands of them wanted to do in, in Berlin. And they took this as quite an insult. And, and the uh, Ukrainian ambassador there, uh, Andrei Melnik, said... I think there should be a war memorial to all the, the Ukrainians, the 8 million Ukrainians who died in the Second World War right here in Berlin. You, you have a Holocaust memorial right in the centre. Let's have one for the Ukrainians too. There's a huge Soviet one. Uh, but the trouble is the Germans tend to identify the Soviet Union with Russia. And a lot of us do this without even thinking. And so the Ukrainians have been somewhat invisible um, since the end of the Soviet Union. And now they're not, you know, now they are asserting themselves and demanding to be taken seriously. Let's talk about Chancellor Olaf Scholz for a moment. He's obviously a relatively recent Chancellor. Most people in Britain probably haven't got a firm opinion of him yet. We're unsure about him, I'd say. And compared to Angela Merkel, he seems pretty weak. He seems pretty invisible on the world stage. And if you look at what Emmanuel Macron's doing, on the other hand, he's trying to become a sort of leader of the European Union, a leader of Europe. And Schultz, in a way, is sort of letting him, it seems, to some. Do you think there's any truth in that? And why is Schultz being so invisible? Well, he is new. Uh, that is a point. And, uh, and, and he is a, he's a technocrat, a former finance minister. He's never really had to exercise power at this level on the world stage before. So I think one must make some allowances. Unfortunately, however, I don't think that's quite good enough. I think the problem with Scholz is that he, like Merkel, who has been effectively his mentor, even though they come from different parties, but most of his career has been spent rather in her shadow, I think he believes that somehow he can manoeuvre in between the Americans on the one hand and the Russians on the other and the Chinese, and that Europe, he is a passionate European, of course, that Europe needs to uh, maximize its political and even possibly military weight. Well, if only that were true, but um, the truth is that Europe has shown that it is less than the sum of its parts, really, that the individual nations can make quite a big difference. But uh, Europe as an institution, uh, the European Union, that is, moves at a very snail's pace, you know, that it's very, very difficult to, to unite behind a policy and then stick to it. Now, Macron, in a slightly different way, also believes that Europe should be, you know, he's a passionate uh, believer in, in a more federal Europe, However, he, being French, uh, interprets this really as a sort of extension of French sovereignty, you know, rather as Charles de Gaulle, his great hero, did. It's interesting that, um, that both that Macron and Scholz are both originally men of the left, but 
they move to the centre, and um, they are both, I, I think, treating Europe as a sort of substitute for socialism in a way. You know, Europe has become uh, the sort of rallying point. Their new ideology. Um, the new ideology, exactly. But you see, uh, just as we saw during the pandemic, Europe turned out to be uh, rather ineffective as a means for organising vaccines and, you know, other sort of medical uh, necessities. So in wartime, Europe hasn't yet proved to be a very useful mechanism. Uh, if anything, I think it's, it's, it's slowed down the response. I mean, Britain, I think, has been much more dynamic, much more flexible, much more able to respond quickly to the emergencies. For example, in building diplomatic support for the Scandinavian countries to join NATO. NATO has had a sort of new lease of life. And uh, Macron, let's remember, wrote it off as brain dead only a couple of years ago. Suddenly, it's, it's, I'm afraid it's the EU that's looking rather more brain dead than NATO. On Schultz, I'm interested in him as a character. Now, you describe him as a technocrat. Do you think it's against his own sort of I don't know, personal beliefs or essence to, or maybe his, against his own ego. I mean, if you look at Macron's ego, he, he, he is a massive narcissist who obviously wants to become, this, as I say, this little leader of Europe. Mm. Whereas Schultz, perhaps he's more modest in a way. And maybe it's against his own character to, to want to do this. And the second thing I want to ask about Schultz is, does he have a sort of historic lens in which he views his own position as chancellor? You talk about him being sort of the, the legacy of Angela Merkel, sort of continuing that. Mm. And Macron obviously sees himself as the new Charles de Gaulle or whatever. Maybe Boris sees himself as the new Winston Churchill. Maybe Zelensky does as well. How does Schultz view his, his position from a historic point of view? Does he look to Adenauer? Does he look to Cole? Does he look to other, other chancellors? Well, certainly not to Adenauer and Cole because they are men of the right. And, and he is, uh, above all, he is a, a solid social democratic party man. So that's, Willy Brandt, that's who he say. is. Brandt a bit, but actually Helmut Schmidt, because Schmidt, like Scholz, came from Hamburg. And the Hamburgers have a distinctive character and tradition, which, which is very honourable. Uh, they, they have the reputation of being, you know, merchant adventurers, very Anglophile. Uh, they're the closest port to Britain and outward looking, you know, not, not as it were, continental, but more Atlanticist. Schultz, however, has disappointed so far on that. I mean, that was true of Helmut Schmidt, who was uh, a, a, a great statesman back in the sort of 70s and 80s, though he failed in the end uh, because his government collapsed because he could not prevent the rise of the left. And I think with Schultz, he's largely conceded to the left. You know, rather than fight them, he has, uh, he's gone along with them. And part of that, I think, has been this very pro-Russian policy. Uh, it isn't, of course, just Scholz. I mean, the current president, Steinmeier, who was foreign minister in the same coalition government with Merkel, uh, he, he's very pro-Russian, so much so that the Ukrainians actually disinvited him when he tried to wangle an invitation to Kiev. They said, no, sorry, you're not welcome here, which Scholz then reacted in the most extraordinary way. He went on television and put on a, an extraordinary display of, of, of kind of wounded amour propre. Uh, you know, he sort of said, well, this is completely unacceptable, this sort of treatment of our president. And um, until we receive an apology, uh, I don't think we, we have anything to say to them. You know, that, it was that sort of tone. And um, the Ukrainian ambassador, Melnik, who I mentioned earlier, uh, called him a sulky sausage, um, <laughs> Lebenswurst. Um, which, uh, you know, is a, is, a, um, is a German expression, meaning, you know, someone who's much too thin-skinned. And um, that didn't do Schultz any good. I think, I think, in other words, he's still inexperienced in the way that he comes across in, in public. I'm sure he was a relatively efficient and, and, and sound finance minister, but I think what is required in this situation is statesmanship and a sense of history, as you say, you know, who is your model and, and what does that actually mean? And at the moment, uh, it looked briefly as though on the very beginning of the war, he suddenly announced, right, this is in a Zeitenwende, uh, a, a changing of the times, a, um, a turning point. 
And everyone thought, right, you know, we're going to see a completely new policy direction from, from Scholz. But then it didn't really happen. You know, there was this announcement about defense. Uh, he went along with limited sanctions, but then it all kind of petered out. And then it turned out that he was actually actively disguising the fact that they weren't giving the Ukrainians the heavy weapons that they were asking for. You know, he was actually being dishonest about that. And he was exposed by the press. German press has played a rather impressive role in exposing the government and, and, and the, the ruling Demo, Dem, Social Democratic Party. And I think Schultz is going to have to shape up or he will be ousted. I, I, I think it's quite likely that um, Schultz will not survive this war. Let's move on from Germany and talk about France and then Britain and then America. So let's start with France. Emmanuel Macron's response to the crisis in Ukraine, the invasion, has been one in which I would argue he's been humiliated a few times. He's tried to negotiate with Putin, which perhaps was sort of, you know, morally, that's a good thing to do. We want to end the war. We don't want a war to happen. However, it looked like Putin was sort of running rings around him and lying to him and he was sort of letting this happen. And as you say, as you rightly say, France and Germany, again, are sort of piling pressure onto Ukraine to, to concede land uh, for a ceasefire or whatever. And again, there is an argument to say, well, we should do everything we can to stop the war in Ukraine. They're suffering. War is a terrible thing. Why should we be criticizing um, countries who want to stop war from a moral point of view? And of course, you've already laid out why, perhaps why the, the, the other side of that argument. How, would you, how do you view Emmanuel Macron's response to this entire crisis? Well, uh, I mean, Macron is uh, so dominant in French politics that in a way he can, he can get away with a flat-footed response, which I'm afraid it has been. Um, I, this is not French diplomacy's finest hour. Uh, Macron has tried to play the role uh, first coined by uh, Bismarck in the 19th century of honest broker. But instead, I think he's been a rather dishonest broker He's not been entirely open uh, at every point with either his allies or with Ukraine about what he's been saying to Putin. I think he may now have recognized that those negotiations only emboldened Putin. They certainly didn't inhibit him. So the question is, what has Macron achieved? He likes to present himself as the leader of Europe. uh, But what has actually been his contribution? Has he has he, for example, defeated the pro-Putin factions within Europe? I would argue not. Uh, he's, he's certainly won that election, and it, it helped him, perhaps, that both on the left, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and on the right, Eric Zemmour, and, of course, uh, uh, Marine Le Pen, were all much closer to Putin than he was. So he was able to pose as... The, the pro-Ukrainian candidate, even though, from Kiev's point of view, uh, he was a rather fair-weather friend. As a matter of fact, the, the French did have one candidate, um, Valérie Pécresse, the moderate centre-right candidate, who was more pro-Ukrainian, but somehow nobody noticed that. She was just pushed aside, and it wasn't an election about Ukraine, is the bottom line. Um, you know, the, the only way in which I think that played a big part was during the debate between Macron and Le Pen, when Macron was able to say to Le Pen, Putin is your banker, because she had actually borrowed money from the Russians. Uh, And that was a devastating blow from which she didn't recover. So I think the French were not comfortable with the idea that they were somehow in the Russians' pockets. But French culture has always been very romantic about Russia. Ever since the Napoleonic era, when actually the Russians occupied Paris at one point, uh, or at any rate, were, were there. Uh, but they were rather popular. And, you know, you only have to look at all the stations in Paris that are named after Russian victories. You know, uh, the French Communist Party, of course, was very, very powerful during the post-war era. And to some extent, people like Mélenchon have inherited that mantle. So although there are very honourable French intellectuals, uh, like uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy, for example who will uh, fight against the Putin uh, apologists and uh, defend Ukraine, I would say the majority of the French elite, uh, the intellectuals, who, as in Germany, are much more influential than they are in Britain, are, are quite sympathetic to Russia. And this gives Macron 
cover. You know, this means that he can maneuver without being seen as uh, morally compromised. I don't think Boris Johnson, for example, would get away with that even if he wanted to, which he doesn't. But, you know, no British prime minister would, would have got away with Putin's equivocations. So I think French culture, like German culture, is very different from Britain. And we, we have to take that into account. But that doesn't mean that the French should be let off the hook. It's true that they're not dependent on Russian energy in the way that many other European countries are. Uh, they have, of course, nuclear energy. But it took them a very long time for some of their big manufacturers to close down their factories in, in Russia. Renault, for example, was one of the very last. Uh, rather amusingly, uh, that factory has now been nationalized by the mayor of Moscow, uh, who is now producing the old Moscovich cars that date back to the Soviet era. Uh, so that sort of Russian nostalgia is still very, very strong. And, and I think the French rather admire all that. So, I mean, to cut a long story short, I think we cannot expect the French anytime soon to have the sort of enthusiasm for the Ukrainian cause that you do find in Britain. I mean, if you travel around Britain right now, it's not so obvious in London, but there are Ukrainian flags everywhere. I suspect we're going to see on the Queen's Platinum Jubilee an awful lot of Ukrainian flags alongside the Union Jack, uh, which I'm fine with. You know, I think that this is the cause of our time. You know, for your generation, uh, as for mine, it's a very, very good time to be alive. But somehow... On the European continent, in France and Germany and Italy too, I would say, they don't feel that way. On the contrary, they fear Russian, even if they're not enthusiastic or romantic about Russia, they fear Russian power, they fear above all nuclear weapons. And of course, it's not a great time to be alive if you're Ukrainian, to be fair. Uh, but I, that wasn't the no, point you're making. <laughs> no, I didn't mean that. But I, but I, I did mean. mean that, in a sense, Ukrainian identity yes. has been forged in and this cauldron of... Of, of fire. And perhaps the West has sort of found its purpose again and NATO has become strong again and, and this is a good thing. And if you look back to the Cold War, there was much more of an ideological bent within sort of the West, let's say Thatcher and Reagan, who, were, who had a very specific goal of ending the Soviet Union. And that was a, a great motivation and some, a sort of a unifying factor. And obviously, since the end of the Cold War, perhaps we've lost that motivation and that, that, that sort of unity, which has led to many, many problems, not just on the world stage, but domestically. And I want to mention Britain because we've been through a lot of political turmoil in recent years with the Brexit vote and the negotiations. And let's be honest, Theresa May probably didn't do great things for British image abroad, uh, nor did the civil service in many parts of the British establishment. And, uh, you know, this caused a lot of problems for us in terms of our image. Has this invasion of Ukraine and Britain's response to it restored our image in a good way, in a positive light? And has it given Britain a sort of a new lease of life in terms of our foreign policy? I would give a qualified yes to that. I, 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 I certainly think it has re-energized our foreign policy. Uh, and by the way, I would give Liz Truss a lot of credit for that. And I think Ben Wallace has also played a very important role as Defence Secretary. Uh, but the lion's share of the credit must go to Boris Johnson, uh, who's long since been a sort of legendary figure. You know, I mean, he's recognisable around the world in a way that very few leaders are. But he's often been seen as a figure of fun, as a buffoon, as, you know, a joker. And of course, in some of the European elites still see him in that light. And that will probably not change. But I think ordinary people look at it differently. You know, they see a man who is uh, working very hard to give Zelensky the tools to finish the job, to coin a phrase. And the fact that Zelensky has singled out Boris and Britain more generally to quite an extraordinary extent, you know, that, that we have almost uniquely stood by Ukraine even more than the Americans, uh, although the Americans, of course, have given far more in the way of military hardware. But I think Zelensky has seen something about the British, which perhaps we'd lost sight of about ourselves. You know, he sees, when he looks at Britain, he sees a proud, ancient country with a fine history, uh, which uh, is doing the right thing, whether or not it's in our immediate economic interests. Um, after all, you know, 
many British companies have lost a lot of money in Russia too. We've lost investment here. You know, it's, it's not cost-free uh, supporting Ukraine in the way that we've done. But it was clearly the right thing to do. And I think there is almost unanimous support here. Of course, there are the Jeremy Corbyns uh, on the left and a few idiots on the right too, the extreme right, who support Putin. But I have been really struck by the um, consensus across the political divide in support of Boris's policy. And I think that British prestige in the world has undoubtedly been increased. And, and my goodness, it was, it was a good time for that to happen because uh, it's, we've almost forgotten this, but less than a year ago, we and the Americans were humiliated in Afghanistan. And that was not our finest hour, although it was, it was a very impressively executed retreat. But, but nonetheless, it was, it was a retreat. Uh, and, and we left them in the lurch. And we have not been particularly generous in allowing those who supported us there to, to come here. So that's a somewhat embarrassing episode in, in our recent history. Uh, much worse for the Americans, I think, but not good for us either. So I'm very proud of the fact that we've, I think, recovered that ground and some by the way that we've handled Ukraine. On the Afghanistan thing, I mean, when you say it's an expertly sort of retreat or whatever for the phrase you use. Well, all I meant was that the, the RAF... Uh, and, and the troops on the ground behave with, with great uh, heroism uh, in getting our people out. They did that very well. But you don't win wars by retreats. Uh, and, no, you know, I mean, I mean, some people... Uh, it, it was a sort of Dunkirk type I, thing. Um, I agree with you in a um, sense, because what they did was fantastic and we should praise them for that. But the planning for it, etc., was, I think, and you can blame the Americans for that, probably, but, but also the Foreign Office was a complete disaster. Oh, I agree. And I, I, I'm not you know, defending that at all. Yeah. And, you know, the Foreign Secretary was on holiday, as I seem to remember. <laughs> uh, you know, no, it was, it was, it was, it made us a bit of a laughing stock. And, um, and what's happened since with the Taliban doesn't bear thinking about, you know, the poor Afghans have, have had a horrible time. And a lot of people were, I think the scales have fallen from their eyes about, about that. Let's talk about the leader of the free world and America, Joe Biden, US president. I'm sure you've got lots of opinions on him. Um, his response to the Ukraine crisis uh, ha has been one of supporting with uh, military aid, a, a lot of money, $40 billion. I think recently Congress approved um, in, in, in aid to send to Ukraine. And this is very controversial in the States. And I think there's a slightly different debate over there. You say in, mm. in Britain, there's a consensus, although I would say, that, and you're right, there is a consensus. I, I would say that may, maybe, you know, maybe that isn't necessarily a good thing because it's healthy debate in a democracy. We should, you know, you should be able to, allowed to sort of dissent without accusing someone of being pro-Putin, of course. Um, and in the States, there is another argument yeah. as to whether this should be a priority. Yeah. And in particular, in the context of massive inflation across the West and in America, it's a huge problem. Their economy is really, really going for a tough period, as all economies are at the moment. And a lot of Americans on the right said, well, what, what are you thinking? This is a, you know, they, they have this mentality of what Trump called America first. Yeah. Why are we sending $40 billion to the Ukrainians when people here can't even uh, buy sort of baby formula for their children or, or, yeah. or whatever, and, and gas prices are, are, are hugely high and, and people are really struggling. So what do you think of this debate in America that says, well, actually, we should be focusing on the domestic economy here and not propping up the Ukrainians? You know, we've got our priorities wrong. Well, just on the, on the British point, yes. I, I'd like to modify what I said earlier, because uh, let's remember that Jeremy Corbyn led the Labour Party into the last general election, and they might have won. And Keir Starmer supported that. You know, he was very happy to put Corbyn into number 10. And I do not believe that Keir Starmer, were he now the prime minister, would have been nearly as tough on Russia as Boris Johnson has been. So I'm not saying there's no difference between Labour and, and the Conservatives on Ukraine. I, I, I strongly suspect that the Conservatives are, are, are a far more reliable government than Labour would have been were they in, in power. Uh, all I'm saying is that, is that so strong has Boris's leadership been, so convincing for most people, that Keir Starmer has had no choice, really, but to go along with it. You know, it would have been a, a great mistake for him to oppose Boris over this. And I, I, I give him credit for probably, you know, as a sort of decent man, uh, um, feeling 
the right instincts on this too. So that's Britain. The United States. Well, Joe Biden is not a great president. I don't think even his strongest supporters would say that. He has presided over a, a terrible economic record and he has given far too much away to the far left. And he, there are many, many ways in which I think he's been a great disappointment. I would say that his handling of Ukraine has been one of the few bright patches in what is otherwise a pretty mediocre administration. I, I, I think his, his initial diplomacy was uncertain. He sent out mixed messages to Moscow in, in the run-up to the war. Uh, if we remember back last autumn and in the winter, he was blowing hot and cold. Nobody was really quite sure what message he wanted to send. At one point, he talked about, well, you know, if it was only a limited invasion, then maybe that would be, you know, different from a full-scale one. And this may even have given Putin the idea of calling it a special military operation, you know. So I don't think Biden should be let off the hook completely. But I do think that since the war began, he has actually been quite statesmanlike. He's given some good speeches, notably one in Warsaw, which was very controversial, where he appeared to call for regime change. I was on his side on that. A lot of other people weren't. Which, by the way, um, was, was reversed by his press secretary, or at least they said, yes, it was. You know, we didn't say that, or Biden yeah, didn't yeah, say yeah. that. And it was well, they, they do this a lot. They do this a lot. Uh, Biden says something, and then somebody else walks it back. Uh, we're seeing this over Taiwan at yes. the moment, you know, where Biden has now three times said that America would come to Taiwan's assistance. And then his diplomats have sort of said, oh, no, 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 he doesn't really mean that. There's been no change in policy. But it's sending a signal to Beijing, which Beijing needs to hear. And in the same way, I think Moscow needs to hear that the United States is not to be messed around with uh, over Ukraine. The U- United States is not going to just cut a deal over Ukraine. That's very important. I've been very impressed by Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary in the Pentagon. He again said something very controversial, which is that, in his view, the end result of this war should be that Russia is weakened, actually weakened, so that it can never do this again. I mean, we forget, perhaps we shouldn't forget, that Putin's now done this a number of times. You know, he's, he's launched little proxy wars or actual wars on his borders. He's intervened with neighbors. He's treated supposedly independent states like, like Belarus or Kazakhstan as though they were just puppets. He's, uh, he's still behaving like an imperial, aggressive uh, tyrant. And whether it's him or whether it's his successor, uh, the Kremlin needs to change its whole attitude to its neighbors. And th- this is what I think the Biden administration, if I can speak more, more broadly, is trying to achieve. And and that I do support. I would say that Joe Biden fits into the category, uh, my old friend and mentor, Irving Kristol, the founder of neoconservatism, once said, he's a liberal mugged by reality. And, you know, Biden is a lifelong liberal in the American sense, which in our sense means, you know, sort of a man left of center. Uh, But I think he has been mugged by reality now. And I think he's got the message that If he achieves nothing else in his administration, the defeat of Vladimir Putin must be priority number one. Thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.